All right, talking with AOC. We couldn't believe it, honestly. We got AOC, one of our very first episodes. Very happy about that. Um, We're that good. <laughs> Alexandria Ocasey. Alexandria? Alexandria? Yeah, Alexandria Ramos Ocasey. Yeah. Alexandria Ramos Ocasey. This will be edited to make me sound confident. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you Sorry. were a. You were a um, area field director for Bernie in California. What was your official job title? Yeah, so officially I was the Central California Area Field Director for the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. So we covered all of the Central Valley as well as the Central Coast of California. California is a big state, obviously. Um, yeah. I was in uh, Visalia briefly as kind of a super vol there. People around there called you AOC sometimes too. <laughs> I, I definitely hope to live up to that one day. So <laughs> <laughs> You never know. Um, yeah. So just as a kind of a point of interest, how do people feel about Kamala around your parts? Yeah. So I think I think it's good to kind of give a comparison, right, of when she was first in the running versus as things kind of progressed a little bit closer to the primary. But I think just in terms, the most accurate way I can probably describe it is that a lot of the folks that were supporting Kamala, especially early on, were a lot of the folks that were supporting Hillary early on last time around. You definitely saw a lot of overlap in terms of like who were the most interested and supported voters for Kamala. It definitely was an overlap of networking as well as the as well as the voters. So I think she she did have support, but it really was more so from the people that already felt like they kind of had a connection or or felt already represented represented by a lot more moderate Democrats such as Hillary. And I think kind of as things progressed and especially as our ground game really bumped up in California and especially in areas where Kamala has done a lot of work, the more that we had a presence in a ground game there, the more things really started to shift our way because not only not only just in terms of the presence but just in terms of the amount of work that we all did mm -hmm. um, you know this was an extremely aggressive field plan that we ran and it and it really was ma making the difference especially the more communities that we were able to reach out to and the more communities we were able to reach out to their leaders get to know them see what the issues were that they cared about mm -hmm. so I think she definitely did had support but it was more so with an already established voter block, whereas we were very adamant about making sure that we were talking to a lot of folks who hadn't normally been voting and really did feel left behind by the political system. So I think she she did have support, but it really was more so from an established supporter group that already existed within democratic politics, whereas we were really right. trying to create a movement and really build up this revolution. Yeah. Also, perhaps some overlap between Hillary supporters and Kamala supporters on Twitter for people who are engaged in the posting wars. Of course, that's not everything, but well, some for some people it is. Um, gotta get these people off Twitter occasionally. Yeah, Kamala was the only one who had really like the, among these really centrist types, she was the only one who had this group that gained like its own kind of notoriety, like the, the K-Hive. I mean, did you ever have to contend with that during the primary? Honestly, not so much. Like, and at least, and it probably was different in the Central Valley, right? Because in the Valley, they just had like the one Senate office pretty much. And actually a lot of the younger folks that had been interning with Kamala, like I had, I had worked with them prior to on different projects. So I, so, and I think that's just because I've lived here for so long and I've done a lot of organizing work here in the area. So I can definitely tell you like from the younger folks, we weren't, at least on my end, we weren't really seeing too much contentions from the older folks a little bit we did we did get some pushback about certain things but it really wasn't anything that we weren't ready to handle we were just ready to pivot and to make sure that we were being direct but staying positive so we did have some older folks that did give give a little bit of, of issue just kind of in general just kind of complaining about how it is that we were approaching things and and specifically just about the term socialism itself right mm -hmm. but other than that and i think again it really it really did come back to the fact that we were in the valley we we didn't really have too too many issues at least with that particular with that particular group so much there's a lot of kind of uh cold war sentiment about that word socialism that we're gonna have to overcome and that i guess perhaps we're gradually overcoming yeah 
And it was encouraging in the Central Valley, right? Just in seeing how the campaigns have been rolling out locally now, we have a lot of people who are openly socialist that are running for positions and Mm. they get a little bit of pushback, but it's mostly from like far right organizations. For the most part, a lot of people, I, I feel very confident that we did a lot of great work to where people really understand that when we talk about socialism, we're just talking about fucking taking care of each other. Like we're not, we're not trying to do all, a lot of these crazy things that, you know, far right people think that we're trying to do half the time. We're just trying to make sure that our families have food on the table. So I think at least in the Valley, we we did a lot of good work and really changing what that direct association for that word was here for our people. You love to see it. Um, So what kind of brought you to left-wing politics generally initially? Well, I come from a family, I come from a long line of Latinas and all of the Latinas on my mom's side of the family, once they were able to get out of the fields, they all went into education. And specifically my grandmother, she was actually one of like the first ever Latina members of the Lark Association here, which is a disability advocacy um, group here in the Central Valley that primarily works with folks that have Down syndrome and other related disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so for us, you know, we we just kind of always been in the struggle, whether it was fighting for more resources for our Spanish speaking students or whether it was just being one of the only fully non-white people in a lot of the disability advocacy spaces. And I think that's important to bring that up, right? Because I'll be honest, one of my first hangups in considering to join the campaign was, are there going to be enough other people of color? Am I, am I not going to be one of the only ones who is is going to be experiencing those awkward moments when people maybe aren't quite aware of what it is that they're saying about my race or my heritage or the people in my office and that kind of a thing. And so I think like I, I had always seen myself as someone who was left, but sometimes it's kind of hard if the spaces are really white to really truly envision yourself being a part of left politics. Right. But what I saw happening here in 2020 really was a very deliberate, a very conscious effort to make sure that these were very welcoming and very diverse and very equitable spaces. So I guess like, I mean, you could technically say that maybe this was my first time in like a leftist organization. However, like a lot of the community organizing work that I've done in the past would also fall under that category, right? But I do just think it's important to kind of make that distinction because I think my family has been doing a lot of things that would fall under that category, but that's just never how we've seen ourselves because of because of the discrimination we've been faced within these same circles, too. So I think just life, life is what brought me into leftist politics, my family not being able to survive and us trying to provide for our friends and family. Um, It's just the, the struggles of life that that brought me into it. I think whether I intended to or not, it was just a place that I needed to be. Yeah, it's, I mean, famously, the campaign really uh, cleaned up with Latinx people this year in Nevada and, and in California, too. It's, I know in, in Nevada, it's my sense was that going back to 2016, there were just, uh, I mean, the Latinx community was hit hard by the Great Recession. And I know in Nevada, a lot of people losing their homes and they were just hit particularly hard. And so in that sense, they were open to Bernie's campaign and open to kind of a more radical critique about American politics and to the things uh, he put on offer. It's, uh, you know, and of course, Latinx people aren't a monolith. It's interesting to kind of see how things go. I mean, within Democratic primary and also in the general election here, of course, you know, you've got some people in Miami and Florida who are kind of more right wing and you've got Latinx people who are more left wing. It's, it's, you know, it's not a monolith, I think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Central Valley is the perfect example. And honestly, I think sometimes we get overlooked and it's kind of sad because in all honesty, we have some of the most comparable demographic makeup to a lot of those battleground areas where a, a very diverse Latinx population lives, places like Florida and other and other states like that, right? Because we have a combination of people who are very, very conservative, as well as people who are a lot more radical. And so I think it's, it's one of the beauties of the area, because if you can really understand how to reach out to Latinx communities in the Central Valley, you can reach out to a lot of other Latinx communities that are in other states because we are very different. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And a lot of our, and especially a lot of our economies, right? In Central Valley, agricultural economy and the oil economy 
are some of the biggest heavy hitters that control a lot of the things happening, especially with labor for our Latinx community in the Central Valley. And a lot of those other states um, that we're currently trying to make sure that we lock up now have similar makeup, right? They have a lot of agricultural areas or a lot of areas where they're drilling for oil. And so I think what it comes down to, right, is really just humanizing the issue, just making sure that, you know, we're being authentic. Latinx people, no matter how different they are, nine times out of 10 can usually sense bullshit, especially if it's like some bullshit coming from a white consultant. So they usually can sense it. And I, that's something I, I do usually feel comfortable, you know, making kind of a general statement about is that, yeah, enough of us have had to go through enough shit in this country that usually we can sense BS. And I think that Bernie's approach really made a difference because they didn't try to hire someone who was Latina who lived four hours away for the Central Valley. They hired someone like me who lived in the Central Valley and had been organizing for over a decade. And I think it really, it really did make the difference because you can only say you support a particular community so much if you are also going to bypass their best organizers and their community leaders in order to hire people from other areas. And in an area like the Central Valley, which mimics a lot of areas that are battleground states and, and other areas where people get left behind very often, that means a lot to us because that means that, okay, you didn't just think these votes were guaranteed because this has a lot of Latinx people in it. You knew that you had to provide for our community and make this a reciprocal relationship. I was going to ask, you know, what brought you, I guess you've kind of touched on it a little bit there, but I was going to ask what brought you specifically to working for Bernie? Were you working for him in 2016? I was not. Uh, actually, during the 2016 election, I, let me see. So I ran... I did field for an assembly campaign because we were at a point for the state party where we were like one seat away from having our supermajority as a democratic party. So I first during before the primaries, I worked on an assembly race, which was the one to to get that supermajority. And then during the general, I actually worked for the state Senate Democrats doing an independent expenditure for a couple of state Senate districts to make sure that we could keep that uh, supermajority for the Senate. So during 2016, I was doing I was doing that work. But in 2020, I actually was teaching uh, when I got the call for the campaign. I was a speech, public speaking and argumentation teacher at, at our community college here. And for me, it, it was a very interesting moment because I really was just minding my own business just in the class with my students. And then all of a sudden I, I get a message saying, hey, would you be interested in this position? And so I took a call. I came back inside. And then I remember like all the students were like, oh, well, what was the call? They got, they got all excited. <laughs> And so I told them, I said, I got hit up by the Bernie campaign, but I would have to leave all of you if I were to take the job. And of course, like without hesitation, all of them just were like, oh my God, take the job. And, and I remember one student in particular, he was like, if you're going to leave us for anyone, leave us for Bernie. And that, that, that statement kind of stuck in my head. So pretty shortly after I decided to go ahead and, and take that job. And then really just that that's how it got started. I, I was lucky enough to to be hit up by the campaign. But realistically, I was really just focusing on doing stuff on campus and some of the organizing I was doing in my in my city specifically. But it just seemed like the right thing. It seemed like the right thing to do. My students were encouraging me to do it. I believed in Bernie's policies and I knew that this was more importantly an opportunity for me to also inspire my students and inspire a lot of the people that I mentor and the people that I work with to really be able to step into their own power. And I thought if they can see me and all the other dope young people of color that I'm going to bring on board doing this type of work, I hope that they can be able to see themselves doing this similar type of work and taking the power that they want in our community. The kids are all right. Um, yes. <laughs> glad to hear there's some support there for Tio Bernie, El Viejito. Yeah, base students. <laughs> yeah. David, did you want to ask this next question about kind of what were the uh, specifics of Alexandria's role in the campaign? Sure. Yeah. So how, how did you work with other members of the campaign? Exactly. Like with volunteers, bring people in and things like that. Yeah. So I mean, I, w I was a little bit higher up in the management chain, which if anything, I feel like kind of drove me crazy because I, I really just like working with the people as directly as I can. <laughs> so that was that was kind of a, kind of an adjustment. And honestly, one of the reasons I had gone back to teaching was because I really do just like just being with the people as much as I can. But my job was really to oversee our regional field directors for each of our areas within the coast and the valley, just to make sure that they were on track, that they had all the training and tools and 
resources that they needed in order to execute our field plan for all of the valley and the coast. So I was really kind of managing them and then they managed their field organizers who worked with the volunteers and and all of that. But yeah, I think it was it, it was wonderful because I, I got to say it was probably some of the most impressive and really nice staff that I've ever really been able to work with. And I think for me, one of the first things that stood out when I first came into the campaign and kind of learned the structure of how things were going to be going for those next couple months was that it was definitely one of the most historical combinations I can say of community organizers and electoral organizers. And I think that's really what made the difference. The way that we approached people, the way we had conversations, the way that we looked at numbers, really all of us were able to be grounded in first what community organizing is and was and how our approach played into a larger movement, right? And I can honestly tell you for a lot of folks that were kind of more in between trying to figure out, do I support Warren? Do I support Bernie? And that was kind of a lot of the situation in the valleys. We had people kind of switching between those two. Hmm. And probably the most persuasive thing that I could tell people about the campaign to really pull them over was we're doing this for long-term impact. We're not just running another campaign. This is something that is part of a larger movement that will withstand the test of time, regardless of what happens on each of those election days coming up. And for me, I knew that this was a structure where I could provide people more power and more insight on how they could learn how to organize better in our community, as opposed to the structures that the other campaigns had. And that was and that really was one of the things that made a huge difference, especially in pulling a lot of endorsements for our Central Valley and the coast. That was um, something we talked about often in New Hampshire was just the value of this campaign and, and bringing in volunteers, bringing in people who were just getting involved in organizing and in activism and building their confidence, building their skills and creating, I think, really an army of people who are going to continue to organize in the future. Yeah, that, that sense of, of larger project is really just so frustratingly lacking. You see it especially now with the new Supreme Court justice position opening up. Like that's a project on the right that's been, you know, going on for decades and decades. Yeah, there's been kind of a frustrating lack of a movement kind of feeling on the left and a sense of, of course, the right has had that for some time. And of course, they, they always have the money on their side. So in some sense, it's a little easier, I mean, at least to astroturf things on their side. But exactly. Fortunately, we do have those Soros bucks on the left. So there's that at least. I've in fact have a <laughs> check that should be coming in this week for this very project. So yeah, I need to get my card renewed. Yeah. That was a good meeting last night where we talked about our strategy for the Antifa super soldiers who are going to come out after the election. But um, yeah, it's I, I feel like in a large sense, a part of the problem for Bernie, I mean, at least in 2016, was just a lack of name recognition. And I think that was something that was often talked about in terms of the, the effort to build Bernie's support among the black community and among other people of color. I think it was, I remember back in like several years back, it was like Bernie used to be on MSNBC almost every day, it seemed like with Ed Schultz. And, but there was kind of this white liberal kind of constituency that was down with Bernie, but it was a little bit more of a process to get the word out with other groups and with other communities. But how would you assess the Bernie campaign's success in that effort in 2020, specifically with, with Latinx people, but with, with people of color more broadly? Yeah, no, I think, I think it really, it really was a lot better, right? And I and I cannot stress enough just how much I think Chuck Rocha's approach and very deliberate injections into the field plan really did make a huge difference, right? Because like I said, and, and just to, to be completely honest, like there are there were a few white folks that supported Bernie very hard in 2016 that frankly were not very nice to a lot of people of color in our community. And so it was a concern, right, because it wasn't only something from a community standpoint that I had to be aware of, but it was also just something that, especially from a management perspective, I had to be extremely aware of, of how is it that we can make sure that we're, we're building a safe space? Because you can't just bring people of color into spaces without making sure that it is safe in the first place, 
And I think that that and, and Chuck understood that when you bring people of color into political spaces, because we have to protect ourselves, we will automatically usually change the space in a way to where ourselves and other people of color coming into the spaces will also feel comfortable. Right. And so if you have a black person or a brown person who is at the higher the higher tiers of management and they're the ones dictating which organizations are going to be reached out to nine times out of 10, you're more likely also going to be reaching out to other organizations that have predominantly people of color. If you have someone who's white up at the top nine times out of 10, they're not going to be as likely to include the organizations that have more people of color in it. And so I think that that was a, a huge difference. And I'm not going to sit here and say that we did every single thing we could have, right? But I think especially with the time frame and the resources that we had, we, we made a conscientious effort to really make sure that we approached it differently. And really the key to that was also us being real about what our political experiences were. Sometimes we would have to make sure that we would have conversations amongst employees and kind of talk about, is this something that we could have been better about? Is this something that we could have provided more time for, provided more space for? And really just making sure that we were being conscientious about all of the internal work that all of us have to do, but also just making sure that we're being hyper aware of how it is that we were coming off to community members and if we weren't meeting the if we weren't meeting that bar, right, then making sure that we could figure out how we could adjust, but to do it in a genuine way that would lead to us still having good relationships after the election, right? Like I'm hmm. someone who still lives here. <laughs> a lot of the folks from the campaign who may not have lived specifically in the city, who came to volunteer or whatever it was, they don't have to deal with those relationships after the fact, right? Though, but I'm someone who lives here. And anything that happened during the campaign, like still, th those are things that still um, impact the relationships here in our community, right? And I think that does make a difference because if I know that these are people that I'm going to continue living with, continue being in community with, as opposed to, oh, I only have to deal with them until March 3rd, it makes a huge difference because that meant that I was coming at them as community members, as opposed to, oh, okay, we just need to get this work done. And I, and I think that's really what made the difference and also making sure that we did, we were provided training that made sure that we were being conscientious about, you know, our privilege and about whatever it is that we said in those spaces and how those would impact others. But I think especially with us in, in the Central Valley area, we had a lot of young folks. Our team was almost entirely young people of color. And that really makes a difference, right? Because oftentimes the, with communities of color, if they see that you are making a conscientious effort to bring in their youth and to respect them and to provide new skills for them, that usually does go a long way with the rest of the community. And I think for us, that was a really big thing here is that they saw us giving that love. Like a lot of the young people that came in to volunteer, I still mentor to this day. And that makes a difference when it comes to me talking to their the older people in their family, because they can tell that I'm approaching their youth with love and I'm doing it from a place of I'm I'm your community member and I intend to have a reciprocal relationship with y'all because that's how we're going to survive. What was your connection to volunteers and interns on the campaign and your thought process for bringing them into the campaign, building them into confident activists and organizers? Yeah, so so I, I definitely did get to work with some folks a little bit lower, especially with it just being such a such a huge area to cover. I, I definitely was doing all kinds of things <laughs> with the campaign, as well as meeting with volunteers and folks, especially younger ones. That, like I said, some of the ones that I'm still mentoring to this day. But I think I think the biggest thing that really made the difference is I would always just kind of start with where I started, right? I would kind of first tell them the stories, especially if they were like right around the age that I was when I first started, like officially kind of doing paid organizing. I would kind of tell them about what it was like first getting started at their age. So, so that way there's at least like some bit of, some bit of connection already off the bat where they can understand that like I'm I'm kind of what happens if you decide to continue in this work that these are these are paths that you can, you know, possibly take. And I think and, and I think for for me, right, the other biggest thing was that in my community, I had already kind of had that reputation of someone who who works a lot with younger folks. So one of the people that actually spoke at our Fresno rally when Bernie came into town is my best friend, Joel Hurtado, who's a very well-known, at least in our area, a very well-known young city councilwoman who got elected, who we had just gotten elected during 2018 in a very, very conservative, like, and I mean, very conservative 
just straight up racist, oftentimes small town in the rural areas. And it was a majority Republican district, but we were able to win. Um, And we won with a single mother Latina socialist, (laughs) which is kind of a crazy accomplishment. But when she got elected, she had literally, I think, just turned 20. And so we had made a lot of headway and we were very, very adamant because a lot of people would ask me, like, why would you go from working on like state and federal campaigns to then working for like a tiny one in a tiny town? And my answer was, because this is a fucking story that inspires, like, this is a huge accomplishment. And we do like she's only been in office for two years, and she's gotten more press than almost all of our Central Valley electeds combined, from local to international news, because it is it's an impactful story. And people saw that we are we were just two Latina best friends who were like, something needs to be done. So let's do it. So myself and a couple of our other friends, we got together, we put together a field plan that was just one that was really foolproof. And we we, we knocked on every single door very a lot, a lot of times we had a lot of saturation and we really organized that district. And we won we it was a hard it was a hard fought race because every single voter really did need to be persuaded. But we did we won and we won by eight votes. And so I think when younger people were approaching us, right? They at least were able to come in with a calmer, more level head because they knew that like we weren't just people doing this because this was a big, cool campaign. Mm -hmm. We all genuinely believed in what young people of color and the working class can do in the Central Valley because, I mean, shit, we're the Central Valley. We we feed the entire world (laughs) for the most part. Our people know how to work. And as long as our energy is directed in a place that is going to create power for us, we will get that power. So it really was a meaningful thing. And her grandfather, Jules' grandfather, worked in the farm workers movement. We come from organizers from the past. And so it was very important for us to have a strong showing, but to more importantly, make sure that every decision that we made from a messaging standpoint, from a field strategy standpoint, that it would inspire every single, especially young Latina girl to take her power if she wanted to run for office, if she wanted to be an organizer, Whatever it was, we wanted to inspire and instill that confidence. And so when it came to transitioning into a larger campaign, it just seemed like, I think, a natural fit for a lot of people because they saw that if I work with them, it's not just me helping to get Bernie elected. It's also me hopefully solidifying my path of how I'm going to help my community here locally. That's an amazing story. Yeah, can you tell us more about that campaign? Like, what, was there any, like, huge curveball or, like, crazy, like, horrifying move or, or anything like that that, like, the opposition did to, did to your candidate and that, you know, when they saw they were, might lose and what you, I mean, as far as you said, it, it, they probably thought it was safe, right? Yeah, so if anything, their racism was their biggest weakness, right? Because to them, it was just like, oh, it's just a bunch of little Latinas. Like, what are they going to do? Hmm. Well, we're going to take your seat. That's what the hell we're <laughs> going to do. And we did. And so with that, right, it was a lot of racism, right? So the, the the town itself, right, is Kingsburg, Kingsburg, California, which is literally <laughs> advertised as a Swedish village. And as you can imagine, right, Swedish people are not the only people that have ever inhabited that area. So it's literally called a Swedish village. Um, you go in there downtown, there's just Swedish music playing all the time, right? And this this incumbent who we were running against was very notorious for being racist. Like literally every day that we'd be out on doors, we'd be hearing new stories of racist things that she had done to especially other Latina people in the district. For example, right, they even have like a Swedish princess thing. And the one time a Mexican woman was about to be crowned the Miss Swedish princess, this incumbent, of course, made a huge stink. And every single time that she had the opportunity to talk about Jewel, the one who ended up beating her, everything was a dog whistle. Mm. Like everything, almost every single thing was just a straight up dog whistle. And it's one of those things where it was unfortunate, but thankfully we were so grounded in what we were doing. And unfortunately, like living in the Valley, especially you get very used to white people, especially being very racist towards Mexicans, especially in rural towns, Mm. because that's that's the dynamic that ag has created. You have a lot of the Latino Latinx people that are working and then the wider people who are the ones who are overseeing. And so with that dynamic, right, any anything that she could say, anything that she could do, 
she would she would go for and every single bit of it was a dog whistle you know attacking her for being unwed while having a child Mm. when it's like girl we're in the central valley like a lot of people a lot of people have kids out of wedlock and especially younger folks It's it's a very common thing now and it's definitely not something that anybody should be attacking somebody for if you're representing a district that has other single moms in it you by no means should be saying anything and also it's just it's just a terrible thing to to attack right we were running the campaign with a newborn like we'd be making phone calls while bouncing the baby on our hip because he had just literally just been born. But also we ended up finding out halfway through the campaign that he had a rare disease. Mm. And so Medicare for all became a very swift reality for us because we're literally switching between having to phone bank and then literally trying to check on him because he was having seizures. And then once they finally diagnosed him, it was just a lot harder. So anytime Stacy, the incumbent, was going to say anything racist about us, it was like, no, like we're fighting for racial justice and God damn it, like we want to get Medicare for all. It is a matter of life or death for that child and for baby Anthony. And it, it does. It makes a huge difference for us. But yeah, it was a lot of racism, both at the doors, on the little Facebook websites that small towns just love to flood <laughs> with all kinds of rumors. But just anything and everything. And of course, like this same incumbent, now that she has no power, the one thing that she did was like help to organize like a Trump rally in her area. But if anything, it really just speaks to her character. But yeah, it it was a lot of racism. And actually, I think if anything, like I said, their racism was their biggest their biggest weakness because they did not see it coming. They did not think that we were going to win. But when we did and actually Joel got sworn in, that incumbent cried and had to leave the room because I think that's when it finally hit them, (laughs) just the extent of of their racism and and what it is that we were that we were starting to build. Make racists cry. I think that's so good. That's so high school, man, to cry when you lose. Come on. I mean, California is thought of this monolithically liberal state. I know historically you have these Okies and Arkies who came there who kind of had a more conservative politics. I mean, you've also got people like Cesar Chavez and just the great history of him in California. Cesar Chavez, of course, going down in the pantheon of great Chavez's along with Hugo in my book. But I think it's, I mean, the dynamic you described, it is just, this is just something that so many libs don't get, and particularly in the pundit class, in the media class, people whose engagement with politics is from air-conditioned offices at the New York Times or at MSNBC, and they say, oh, these kind of people, you're talking about Medicare for All, you're talking about these other things, it's too far left, it's not going to fly, people aren't going to vote for that. But when you really make a strong case and a revolutionary case and you build motivation and you build a movement, and that's what so many people don't understand, I think, is movement politics. Politics as a movement, not just as PR and all the rest of it, but really getting people engaged and getting people off the sidelines to work for you and to vote for you. We're going to move to our last question here. What other activist work have you been involved with since the campaign? What do you think people should be paying attention to now and after this general election in November? Where should people's focus be? As soon as the election ended, I immediately shifted gears to try and help some local activists who have been working to end police violence in our city and in the Central Valley. The Central Valley not only has to deal with the ag economy and the oil industry, but we also unfortunately are a huge component of the prison industrial complex, especially in California. And so Bernie's rally that we had in Fresno was one of the largest that had occurred in 40 years or so. And then shortly after, once the Black Lives Matter movement was kind of having a resurgence, the largest march that happened after that was our Black Lives Matter movement march in Fresno. And so we we definitely experienced a shift, but especially in Fresno, unfortunately, as we were running the stuff for Bernie in Fresno, we also ended up getting our former police chief as our mayor. So not ideal for 2020, <laughs> you can imagine. So what that meant, right, is that as much as, as many leaps and bounds that we've been able to make in this city, there are a few local races that do have a lot of control that unfortunately impact a lot of folks, especially our brown and black folks in southern parts of Fresno and in the Central Valley. And so they ended up starting a police reform commission as a means to try and pacify <laughs> a lot of the activists and people that had come out because they recognized, well, like, damn, if we have everyone coming out and this is the largest gathering we've had in over 40 years, then obviously the people are upset. 
Mm. So I, I first immediately shifted my resources to trying to support the work, whether it was messaging, communication. I helped out with listening sessions where we talked to people who have been impacted by police violence directly in our city. I mean, shit, we literally have a mayor where we have moms and grandmothers that the main interaction that they've had with our mayor is that he shot and killed some of their family. Mm. Like that's like, what the fuck is that? That's no one should have to fucking deal with that. That is, it's just fucked. So, so that was the first place that I really shifted my resources was like, okay, now that I just learned all of these new skills, I respect the work, especially of our black and brown community have been doing to end police violence here. How is it that I can go ahead and fall in line and support Um, the work that they're doing. And then secondly, environmental justice, right? Here in California, we've experienced a lot of fires and especially in the Central Valley, one in particular that we literally had 0% containment on for I think a a solid month was the Creek Fire. And literally just within the last week is when we've finally been able to start actually going back outside because now the air is decent when we already have some of the worst air quality in the entire country, even before the fires came to town, Mm -hmm. right? So I started working more with the Sunrise Movement here locally as well, and really trying to uplift some of those young folks. And so what we decided to do, right, was I I wanted to look at, see, who are the young people, especially the young people of color who were really stepping up, and who are the ones who are still continuing to do work, especially in the middle of the pandemic? Like our DSA chapter um, started a mutual aid network, right? I donated to them, and and then I was connected with someone who is who worked with us on the Bernie campaign, And they wanted to run for school board. So I was like, okay, as long as you're comfortable centering ending police violence and environmental justice and really allowing this to be an opportunity for us to continue to inspire young people of color, but also secondly, allow everyone to understand how these things that we have talked about at the federal level can and should also be implemented at every level of local government that we have the ability to. Because if we're if we're trying to pass a Green New Deal, right, and all the young people, for the most part, are on board with it, why aren't we having more green curriculum in our schools? Hmm. If they're the ones who are going to have to deal with the brunt of it, why aren't we doing more project-based learning that teach them how to adapt and how to improve and have a reciprocal relationship with the earth, right? Hmm. So I've been so after that, I decided to shift a lot of my focus into working on local school board campaigns that were actually in the area that I grew up in as a kid in South Fresno, and figure out okay. How can we prioritize the issues of the movements that are occurring right now, be realistic about what's happening outside? And so we got together a bunch of young people of color organizers, myself, a lot of other ones that worked on Bernie's campaign, as well as other campaigns in the area. And we all had a collective conversation about, okay, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Shit is getting real. What resources are we as organizers sharing the most often with our neighbors? And so we went ahead and identified a free meal map where we were directing families of locations that they could get free meals for them and their families, a mutual aid network that was multilingual and was the best, that was the most well-funded within the Valley, as well as sites for free COVID testing where people could sign up without charge to get get tested for COVID. So we've been running school board campaigns here locally and primarily with a young Latino, David Paredes, who's one of the chapter leaders for our local DSA, as well as Abena Cruz, who's a civil rights leader here in the area, um, a black woman who's running for our community college board district. And so we've combined efforts. And what we've been doing is we've been able to reach out to tens of thousands, primarily black and brown people first and working class folks as well to ask them first, hey, do you need anything? Do you and your family need to be connected to find free meals, mutual aid, COVID testing? And we've started with wellness checks. And then we move into asking about the votes. And it's something that all of us can be proud of because we have we've been able to connect tens of thousands of our friends and family and neighbors to resources that they need. And it's something that was necessary regardless. And and it's something that we hope that more campaigns are going to continue to adopt. We know that Bernie did something similar to this when the pandemic hit. But we're hoping that if we're getting millions and billions of dollars every election cycle, why aren't we using it more strategically? And some people say, oh, that takes more time on the phones. But no, if you look at our conversion rates, they're super high. Mm -hmm. Because when we're offering things to people, they're more likely to also give us that vote. So we're seeing higher numbers of yeses. We're seeing lower numbers of undecideds. We're seeing people turn out at higher rates and voting earlier, but also we're seeing people feeling taken care of. And so now when our folks have voted, they're not just helping their friends and family vote, 
They're first checking in on their friends and family, asking if they need resources, and then helping them with the voting process to make sure that everything in that sense is taken care of. And so we've really tried to approach this in a way of like, how can we provide for those kids the same way that we didn't get provided for when we were kids, since these are these same areas? And how is it that we can, you know, really feel good about the work that we're doing and also provide new ways to run local campaigns here? But that's what we did. We, we, I looked at who are the young people that were stepping up? Who are the young people that are using their time in a way that is reciprocal? And we've given that love back and we're on track to hopefully get, at this point, it looks like we'll get both of those school board candidates elected, but we're going to do it in a way that shows people that we're here to organize and we're here to take care of one another. And that's the leadership style that all of us young people of color are going to continue to push as we continue through this pandemic and on to the next election cycles. That's awesome. I mean, there is a great legacy on the left of uh, a great history of mutual aid with groups like the Black Panthers and just serving the people and tending to their needs, especially when our government does not really show us people that you're not just interested in their vote, you are interested in helping them, which is why we're all in this thing, you know, which is why we're in politics. But what candidates do you like in the future, maybe on a national level or uh, moving towards the national level? Who do you think we should be paying attention to? I'm a big Rashida Tlaib fan. She's probably my favorite of the squad. But who do you like? Yeah, I mean, I mean, AOC is my tocayo. That means like person with like similar name, right, in Spanish. So I mean, I, I'm always going to be an AOC fan and... And I, and, and I definitely think that she's going to be coming up more. Yeah, I think the whole squad, right? Like the, the whole squad, I think, are, are the ones to be reckoned with. And as they continue growing the squad, I think we're going to see a lot more collective power building and we're going to be seeing more pronouncements of power and more demands, which I'm very excited for. But I definitely think that AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush is someone that I really, really love, especially as someone who has kind of been both back and forth through community organizing and electoral organizing. I think someone like Cori Bush is extremely impactful, right? Because she kind of shows the the progression, right? She kind of shows how someone can start out on the streets, but, you know, move into those places of power. Because mm-hmm. if, if someone is willing to be out on the street and put their body on the line, then I can already tell you that they're probably way more qualified than most people who would never ever consider that have the ability, of course, to be putting their bodies on the line for justice. And I think that's something that goes a long, long way. But she's not just someone who was there for posing for pictures. She's been one of the ones organizing those protests. So I think especially especially black women like Cori Bush who have who have started as organizers and really have that plethora of knowledge of what it means to be asking for something as an organizer or as an advocate or an activist versus getting some Thing done when they have that that legislative position. So yeah, I think AOC and Cori Bush are probably on my top. But of course, like I said, my girl Jewel, we definitely don't plan on stopping anytime soon. So hopefully, you know, y'all will be hearing about Jewel a little bit. We want to make sure we finish school first, but <laughs> but after that, all bets are off and we're we're coming for the seats that we want. Awesome. Did you have anything you wanted to add, David? When you brought up the race, Jewel's race in that small apparently right-wing community before you guys took it over. I'm in Florida right now writing articles uh, about the campaign. And so I'm going to Trump rallies and I'm talking to people and I keep vacillating between feeling like every person's a person and is gettable if you talk to them in the right way and things like that. And, And then also being like, you know what, screw it. We only need a majority anyway. And some of these people are just batshit. And even though they would totally benefit from the kinds of policies that you and I support, they're just so in deep on stuff that is just wrong. And I don't even know where to begin to disabuse them of it. And it's like, I I don't know when I think about if I was in a district full of these kinds of people, which there definitely are here. I mean, I'm in Miami now. I was up in Central Florida for that rally he did at the airport. And that was like some some really powerful, like in the bubble experience because you see them interacting with each other and they're speaking to me like like a nice person. And I'm sure they're fine people to the people immediately around them and their families and stuff. So there's like a decency there to work with to sort of maybe pull out something better out of them but they start talking to you about QAnon and about like really crazy stuff that's informing their politics that seems like a bunch of like unfalsifiable 
claims that are underpinning everything they believe. And I, I just don't know if I feel like screw these guys, whatever, we don't need them to win anyway, or no, everyone, if you have a good project, everyone should be worth your time. If that makes sense to you as a question, like where, where do you fall on that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think all those feelings are valid. And I think a lot of us, <laughs> I think a lot of us kind of toggle between, between those, especially just the fact that you have to be in those spaces. Right. I think it kind of, it forces you to really, to really think about how it is that you want to approach it. Probably the smartest place for me to start, right, is the thing I always tell, especially young people of color in those spaces is trust your gut, right? Like nine times out of 10, you're probably having gut feelings every time you're having to interact with these folks, right? And that's a combination of you trying to assess how persuadable they are as an individual. But it's also a combination of your gut telling you if this is a person who is even safe for you to be around, right? (laughs) And I think that's kind of the first place to start is starting with your gut instinct and survival, right? And it's, it's definitely different just depending on who you are as a person going into those spaces with those different folks, right? Because I'll be completely honest, like, we knew very early on that with Jules race, there were definitely a lot of areas in town where it was not okay for us to send our black organizers. And it really was because it wasn't fair to them having to experience that and having to put their gut and their survival at risk in those moments, right? It wasn't fair to them in any way, shape or form, right? And so I think that's the first place to kind of start out with is whose survival is this impacting? If you do feel like you're threatened in those instances, then absolutely, you should not feel an obligation to try and persuade somebody if, you know, your gut, even even if they don't have a gun in your face, right? If your gut is telling you like, this person is not safe to be around, you should probably honor those feelings, right? And I think that's always the best place to start is just how does your gut feel? How do your survival instincts react to this? Because they're there for a reason. We don't have those gut senses just to just to mess with our heads, especially when you're in those situations. They're going off for a reason and they're going off because they're trying to protect you and protect your well-being. So I think that's the first place to start off with. Right. But with with situations like Jules race where we knew we were talking to a lot of people who were Trump supporters and were very conservative we really had to kind of step back and be like okay we know that this is a community that has x amount of people we know that we are likely to run into x amount of racist situations and racist people but what is our ultimate goal here right and i think that's where the weighing needs to occur the weighing needs to occur between the survival and the gut feelings and what is the ultimate goal in that particular situation. So for you, if your ultimate goal is just to get some good coverage and to be able to hear from folks that have these similar opinions, then, you know, maybe it's not your best option to try and persuade them. But if your ultimate goal is to not only document, but to convince more of these people that they should be thinking the way that you are, or they should be thinking at least hopefully a little less racist than they currently are thinking, then maybe they're, they're, that is the option of when you go ahead and, and try to take that approach. And one of the things that I think was best with the Bernie campaign was that we, we really persuaded through story. We didn't try to tell people like, you're wrong. <laughs> We, we started with our story. We tried to connect on a human to human level. Did that work every time? No, especially if someone was super racist and very set in their ways. And oftentimes you have to ask yourself, right? Like, is it my obligation to be the person to check them? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Oftentimes, even when it is, your safety may be too compromised to where you can't take that risk. But I think that when it came to situations with Jules, we also had a team that was very well equipped. Like all of us pretty much had done speech and debate in the past. And so we were very, we were unfortunately very used to how to persuade racist white men, especially to get them to see something that was still advantageous to them, but was still advantageous to us. Right. So it really just depends on first and foremost survival of you and who you are with. But then, then it's a matter of weighing is that goal more important than whatever else that you are risking in that moment? And, and I think that really is when you have to ask yourself, right? Because people, people have asked me in the past, and especially when we've had conversations about police brutality and police violence, I remember like our central committee meetings started getting heated because I was one of the few people advocating, saying that we should not be taking law enforcement money if they're not going to be changing their training, if they are not going to be trying to tackle these issues that are killing our community members. And a lot of people were just like, oh, well, this is unfair to our brothers in blue. 
And what I had to say to them, like, that's not who I am here for right now. I am here for the black and brown people that are being impacted by police violence. So that is who I am here for. And I'm going to make my decisions based off what is best for their survival. So for me, sometimes if I feel like I can, you know, persuade somebody and it is, and it is going to be advantageous for the groups that I am trying to represent and take care of, then I will take that moment. However, if I think that this person is clearly racist and maybe my better bet is to just document it and to walk away and to get other people away from that situation, then I'll do that. But for me, the weighing mechanism always has to be survival and always has to be us being able to ask ourselves, who is this that we're doing this for? As much as I, I want to oftentimes take more of a humanist approach, like I also have to be realistic that I only have a finite amount of energy. And if I only have a finite amount of energy, I would rather be helpful to the movements that are prioritizing those have been, who have been historically oppressed. What you said in particular regarding like, do I disabuse this person of a certain notion? There was one person in particular who I asked them how, what they thought about this like plot against Gretchen Whitmer that, that came out in the news recently, or you guys wanted the kidnapper. And he was like, well, I read something online that that turned out to be Antifa. Isn't that, isn't that the case? And I just didn't have the heart to tell him like, no, that's not true at all. I was just like, I don't know. I have to look that up. I'm not sure. <laughs> Cause uh, he could, I, I could in that situation, like my gut was telling me like, this guy is going to get like really pissed off and I don't know what's going to happen if I, if I, if I say yeah. something. Yeah. No, yeah. They, they read it on uh, freedom eagle dot Q dot RU. Right. <laughs> Like the most valuable thing that we can do, like when those situations come up and like, and that's why I preface it. Like I tell the young people this, cause like we are at a point where we have to prioritize survival. So listen to your gut, right? Like your David, your gut was right on the spot. It was like, yes, I can take this moment, but like this guy is not the one and he is not worth it right now. Cause your, your gut knew. And that's, and, and realistically it is, it is the best thing that we can be telling people who are in these moments dealing with these people is trust your gut because your gut, it's not just you, it's your ancestors. It's everybody telling you like, watch the fuck out. Great. This has been really good. This might even be a whole episode unto itself. Um, we'll let you know when your episode gets out there, but yeah, thank you so much. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Cool. Thank y'all. Have a good one. Thank Thanks, Alex. Bye. Bye.